please take your Bibles and turn once more to John's Gospel. John's Gospel in the chapter 13. Again, let's seek the Lord together in prayer. We read verse 14. The Word tells us, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Well, let's bow in God's presence and seek the face of God as we come to study the Word, and that indeed be a blessing and a help to your hearts tonight. Eternal God and Father, we look to Thee again in Christ's name. We come before Thee, we want, O Lord, as Your servants, to do the bidding of our Master. We want to hear the voice of Christ in the Word tonight. We want to understand what is mean, what is meant by these things, that we would indeed have the ability to grasp the question that we would know what the Lord did to his disciples, and understanding that so we would be able to put into practice in our own church life. Grant us grace in the understanding of the word tonight. Bless every hearer, give special grace and diligence to concentrate through the message, and give help in the preaching, and that it will be clear, and that it will come, O Lord, with precision and accuracy, and that indeed every word would be according to thy will. So guide and direct us in all truth tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Suppose I could start with a question. I'm going to start with the question and end with the same question. Have you washed any feet recently? Not talking about your own, but have you been involved in foot washing in recent times? Well, that's a strange question. Well, I'm not sure it would have been a strange question in the early church. I think it would be a very appropriate question to ask in the early church. Before we get to foot washing, please note an important line of thought in this passage. And it is the thought that it was love that moved Christ to action. I said to you already, verse number one of this chapter is indeed emphasizing what is going to be taught in the rest of the section all the way to the end of chapter 20. It is Christ's love of his disciples unto the end and the completion of his earthly ministry. Of course, his love does not conclude there, but the emphasis on this passage is that his love is being demonstrated in these chapters. And thus, it is the love of Christ that causes him to rise from supper and to take a towel and gird himself, taking the form of a servant. He is moved to humble service out of love for his own. It is the same love that we see, of course, paralleled in Philippians chapter 2, that though Christ was equal to God, he thought it not robbery to with God, yet he made himself of no reputation and took the form of a servant. And so love moved Christ to humble action. And if such love moved the master... So love must also move us to humble action. Verse 13, the Lord says, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. And in that setting, he's telling them that as their Lord and Master, he in his own loving, humble service has shown them an example that should move their own humble service. And it is that thought that is connected towards the end of the chapter in the new commandment of verse number 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love 
one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And so the point again is that it is love that then moves us to humble service. And we can say until we're blue in the face that we love the saints, but such love is always evidenced in humble service. It was so for Christ, and it must be so for us. We must be moved by a love for the brethren to serve them graciously and humbly. You see, to choose to follow Christ is to make a solemn commitment to love the other disciples. If you're evangelizing people, please make this clear. There is no true love for Christ that does not involve a loving commitment to the disciples. That line of thoughts here, The Lord as the master loves his own and serves them in humble service. And so all those who are under Christ, who follow Christ and are disciples of Christ, they are all committed to loving fellowship with the saints of God. Not isolated, not mavericks, but a people who are committed to one another for the glory of Christ and the good of the church. It's a foundational principle and it's clearly expressed here. The question is, doesn't involve foot washing. To what extent is this love for the saints going to involve this practice of foot washing? Now you'll see in your outline I have three words. Three words of questions. The points are longer than that, but I thought I'd just leave the questions there and the one words in your outline. And I really want to ask questions regarding three separate areas. First of all, regarding the area of sacrament. And then a question regarding the area of service. And then finally, a question regarding the area of sanctification. Let's begin with this issue of sacrament. Is foot washing a sacrament or an ordinance? We, we use those words interchangeably at times. And there are those, uh, again, in, in the Protestant community who, who don't like the idea of a sacrament. But our catechism uses that term. Some think, well, sacrament sounds like sacramentalism. It sounds like Romanism. But it's not being used in that way. Again, when we use the word sacrament, we're describing an ordinance that God or Christ has instituted to, to display the gospel and to be a means of grace to the saints. Not, not to provide grace in the sense of the Roman sacrament, not as a, as a means whereby grace is, is communicated in that sense, but rather a means to strengthen the faith and encourage the saints as they receive the various of the two sacraments in the present tradition. But the words of verse 13 and 14 have led many, certainly at least some, to see foot washing as a sacrament of form. Verse 13, ye call me master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so am am I, or so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, add those words to the fact that this event of foot washing comes in close proximity to the Lord's Supper. You can see why some have attached this foot washing to the practice of the Lord's Supper. And there are churches in this area who still do that. They bring the two together. There's a a taking of the Lord's Supper, either preceded by or followed by some form of a foot washing ceremony. See, by the late 
And we talk about the patristic period, the late 5th, 5th century, the end of the church father period in church history, uh, 5th century AD. It was a ritual in some places. So no, no longer a practical necessity. You know what I mean by that? Your feet are dirty, you need to wash them. That's the practical necessity of foot washing that's really the, the key idea here in John chapter 13. But now it becomes, it becomes ritualized. Some of the churches in North Africa, elsewhere, had a ritual regarding foot washing by the end of the 5th century. Of course, in the modern Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, it is a ritual associated with Monday, Thursday, just before Good Friday. They have these foot washing ceremonies. The Seventh-day Adventist sect also practice regular foot washing. But it's not just these sorts of groups that uh, are getting engaged in this. There are Protestant groups that also engage regularly in foot washing. The Moravian Brethren from Europe have practiced foot washing for many, many centuries. As have the Mennonites. Some Mennonite groups in this area, you, you know those folks very well, over in Lancaster County, there's regular practicing of foot washing. And so there was fairly broad representation to the significance of this event for the future church. Looking at it honestly in history, there's been a, a fairly broad representation in various uh, church groups who have seen this as being significant for uh, ongoing church life. But it's certainly not been universal. And again, within our own uh, confessional standards, there are but two sacraments, two ordinances, uh, that of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that is the consensus opinion of the Reformed Church, just two sacraments, two ordinances, and not two plus this, just two. But the question is, is that correct? We don't do anything just because it's a traditional practice or it sits well within Reformed churches. Do we need to consider this passage and perhaps add this to your services? Or as I ask in the, the title today, is it time to get out the basins? Is this something we should do? And again, don't dismiss this quickly. The temptation is just to laugh this off and, and dismiss this as, a, as something we should do as a church. Just because we haven't done it before doesn't mean it would not be right to do it now. We're always examining the Scriptures. We always want to make sure we're uh, performing those things that are according to the will of God. And the Lord says, ye should do as I have done to you. He's given this as an example. So what are the arguments for this being an ordinance or a sacrament, or not even so much being an ordinance, but being something that is of an ongoing obligation. Again, I accept there are, are different ideas here. Uh, something may not be an ordinance, but it still be required in the church going forward. So whilst the idea of it being a sacrament maybe is harder to, to justify, well, is this something with ongoing significance? Well, why would they say that? Well, already I said verse 15. The Lord says, I've given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. It's got this idea of, of, of continuing on something. The Lord has set them a pattern that they should follow. It's not dissimilar to the language of the Lord's Supper. He sets a pattern for them to follow. I say, and I use the words carefully, it is not dissimilar, but it is different. It's not the same. But there is clearly also, not only is a language suggestive of the Lord saying, well, you've got to do this as I've done to you. There is also clearly symbolic significance beyond the physical act. And that is, that's kind of sacramental, isn't it? Because we understand that baptism is symbolic beyond washing the body. We don't baptize people because they're, they're dirty physically. 
Um, when we don't have the Lord's Supper because we're hungry. The eating and the drinking is symbolic. The, the washing is symbolic. And we saw the last time here, the, the cleansing here is much more than clean feet. Judas was washed, but it says in verse number 10, he's not clean. And so there is uh, symbolism in this uh, that is beyond the, the practical, physical act of washing feet. And so you can see, you really see understandably why some people see this as having a sacramental significance. I don't think they're mad in the head. I can see why some would argue this way and argue this being a, a, an ordinance of, uh, of some degree of significance. But what is a sacrament? Well, according to our catechism, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ. Wherein by sensible signs or signs that are perceived to the senses, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Could this not be said to be true of foot washing? It clearly symbolizes gospel truth. And clearly is at this point instructed by the Lord to continue this and to do it as he has done to them. The question is, is this instituted for continuing practice? That's the question. Is it to be instituted in the church for ongoing practice? The Lord did many acts of symbolism, but they are not all intended for future practice. This, to my mind, is more example than it is commanding ongoing practice. And so the arguments against then are, follows, are as follows. Though the Lord's foot washing of the disciples may share some of the characteristics of a sacrament, it does not share them all. It was not, I believe, instituted as a perpetual ritual. Unlike baptism and the Lord's Supper. Again, the language is different here. You take the language of uh, 1 Corinthians 11 we read this morning, or language of Matthew 28 and baptism. In both those cases, there is clear language indicating the ongoing practice till the Lord returns. The Lord's Supper, you do this till I come. Baptism, you do this as long as the Great Commission continues. As long as the gospel age is continuing, you keep on baptizing new disciples in their faith in Christ Jesus. There's clearly ongoing perpetual obligation in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper that we do not find the scripture regarding foot washing. It is not mentioned in the epistles as an ongoing practice of the church. We don't even see it in portions like Acts chapter 2 when the church is coming together after Pentecost. And so if this is ordination or this is a, an ordinance of ongoing sacramental importance, surely there would be a mention of it in the epistles. Well, that itself, I believe, is not a, a final argument. I think all of these things come together. But the only other time foot washing is mentioned after John is over in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Turn across there just for your interest. And I think this does emphasize the point. It's 1 Timothy chapter 5, and it's the passage that deals with uh, the, the widows. And it's an assessment of, well, how do you know who's a widow who's worthy of the church's support? A, a widow indeed is the language that Paul uses. Well, well, in verse number 10, there are certain qualifications for such a widow. Well reported of for good works, if she had brought up children, if she had lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet. 
Now, the argument is very simple. If foot washing is an obligation for all the saints in the church at all times, then this is not a unique feature of this woman's ministry. If we're all doing it, why emphasize this in the widow indeed? And so it seems to my mind that when you go into the early church, clearly there was the need, the practical need for foot washing. And if you want to wash feet, that's totally fine. It's an act of hospitality. It's an act of kindness. It shows this woman to be a woman of good works, a woman who's willing to support the church, support strangers, to be hospitable and kind. And the foot washing is part of the demonstration of her standing in grace. But it proves it's not an ongoing public practice. It's happening in homes, but not in the gathered church. It is a private matter of hospitality, not a public, sacramental, ecclesiastical ritual. I think that's what it's about. There's no evidence of this becoming a third ordinance or practice beyond culture. Again, I think the point is this. We see foot washing as being practical, not ceremonial. But baptism and the Lord's Supper we see as not being practical, but being ceremonial. There's a difference. Foot washing has a practical need. Baptism is symbolic. It's not about having a wash. It's about the symbolism. The Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 is very clearly symbolic. They would have their main meals at home. And they came together and they had the Lord's Supper together. So you see symbolism and ceremonialism in those two ordinances, but you don't see that when it comes to foot washing. So, If this is not a sacramental ordinance, how then do we take and apply verses 13 and 14 of this passage? What are we to do with this? We're told, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. And that leads into the second question here. What about service? What does this teach us regarding our ministry as a servant of Christ in the world? What do the Lord's words here indicate and imply? Undoubtedly, verse 14, the Lord has washed their feet. There is a cultural necessity there due to the roads and the footwear and all of those things. But that cultural necessity does not mean there's no ongoing application regarding our practice and our service. And there are two things I need to emphasize to you again tonight. The Lord's action here that is patterning Practice for the disciples, he is patterning an act of humility. Remember we noticed in Luke's gospel that right in the throes of this event, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And that sets the scene for the words of verse number 16. And note the repetition, verily, verily, amen, amen, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Sounds so obvious. The master clearly is greater than the Lord. But the Lord has condescended to wash their feet, showing them the action of humility. And yet the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. They're showing a proud spirit, and the Lord is saying to them, I have washed your feet, 
But it does not mean that you're exalted or greater than I am. I am your master and Lord. That is what is true. You say that, you say well. So what I've done to you here is showing you an example of true humility. Now we saw last time that John chapter 13 has very, very clear parallels with Philippians chapter 2. The Lord, who is co-eternal and quick with the Father, he leaves the ivory palaces to come to a world of woe. And thus, in John chapter 13, verse 4, he rises from supper and lays aside his garments and takes a towel and girds himself. We're seeing a physical demonstration of the Lord's humility that was true regarding his very coming into the world. And so keeping that parallel in mind, you can see the application, the ongoing application to the church regarding the vital necessity of humility in the work of God. So turn across to Philippians chapter 2. And here you'll see this. Again, you know these words. It's the passage that refers to the mind of Christ, the mind that is in Christ, that that same mind should be in us. Philippians chapter 2. The verse number 5, let this mind being you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what is that mind? Well, it is the mind in verse 6 and following that shows itself in his willingness to humble himself to be our Savior, to obey, to submit to the Father, that he might secure our salvation through the death and the cross. The mind of Christ is a mind that embraces humility for the extension of the kingdom. And that same mind is exactly what's been referred to in the previous verses. Fulfill ye my joy, verse 2, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others." Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So forgetting the practice of foot washing for a second, ask yourself the question, do you have the heart that would be willing to wash feet if that was necessary? Are you prepared to do those humble acts of service to be a blessing and a help to the people of God, no matter how unpleasant or how inconvenient those services seem to be. The Lord says we're to do this. And if we're not doing this, then we're not following our master's commands. He said, well, I'm doing everything else. But if, if you're not humbly serving others, then you're not doing the Lord's will in that area. We have to be those who look for the things of others. You see, such a proud spirit that comes into the church often sees matters of own self-interest and doesn't consider the needs and the benefits of others in the church. Such a spirit requires that we give careful consideration and try to think about things from the perspective of others. And so we come perhaps to a uh, an issue of conflict or contention in the church. It's very quick to form our own opinions and get our own ideas in that situation, but we're very slow sometimes to, to think about it from the perspective of the other party. Why are they doing this? Why are they thinking this? Why have they come to these convictions or opinions? What, what's going on here? And it's, it's our duty as a humble child of God to try to think about the things of others. 
And then when we come to the conclusion, we say, well, I can see that now. It may be time to set aside our own convictions. Or, uh, maybe not convictions, but our own preferences. Because again, we should not set aside our true convictions, but there is this matter where we might set aside our preferences for the benefit of others. Again, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to try to exalt myself, but I have to give myself a, some sort of example. I, I am not a huge fan of the second Lord's Day afternoon service. I find it very hard to preach. I'm tired, you're tired. But I see the benefit for our church. I see the benefit of fellowship together and praying together on the Lord's Day afternoon. And so I, I'm prepared. Say, okay, once a month, we can have this time that's beneficial to those who travel and good for the church of Christ here. And I'm not trying to exalt myself. I'm just using an example that's concrete in my own mind. We have to have this spirit if we're to be the Lord's disciples. Second thing is this is an act of hospitality. That's really what it is. That's what First Timothy emphasizes, that this foot washing is a display of hospitality when people come to your home. Again, it's cultural. It's practical. Again, I know some cultures where you go to their homes and you take off your outside shoes and they give you a pair of slippers. There's no basins involved, but the same idea is a matter of hospitality, of welcoming visitors into the home. And this foot washing is indeed this practice of hospitality. You come to the home, you've been walking. What should the master do? They should ensure there is foot washing for those who have been traveling. It refreshes them. It, it helps them in their visit. And so I believe the application of this passage is an encouragement to us all to engage again in the practice of hospitality. And the New Testament has much to say regarding the ongoing obligation to offer hospitality. The elder of the church as being exemplary of the work of God, is one who must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober of good behavior, given to hospitality. And what's the elder's duty? It is to shepherd the flock of God, and it is also to lead the flock of God by example. And so what's, inquire, what's required of them is simply a standard of righteousness and uprightness that therefore encourages and exhorts others in the church, and they are to be given to hospitality. Or it says in Titus chapter 1, a lover of hospitality. Uh, literally, the lover of the stranger. The stranger coming, they're embraced, and they're welcomed into the home. So this hospitality primarily should be seen in the house of the Lord. So I'm going to look at this hospitality in, in two areas. First of all, hospitality must be shown in the house of the Lord. Again, the root word for hospitality in our New Testament has this idea of loving strangers. And if you turn across to James chapter 2, you'll see this idea. So what, all I'm doing here is I'm, I'm taking the idea of what's involved in foot washing and seeing how that applies in a broader sense in the New Testament church. This is very practical. James chapter 2, and the verse number 8 says this. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. Okay, remember what we saw? This foot washing by Christ is a display of love for the neighbor. And James is here, again, who, who draws so much upon the teaching of the Lord. He's emphasizing the need to love your neighbor, to obey the law of God. But what does that look like in James chapter 2? 
Well, it looks like how you welcome the poor into your church. There's an assembly, verse 2. There's a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel. And there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And so we think to ourselves, well, we really like the look of this guy with the gold ring. And, and you make much of him and you prefer him and you, you show him a place at the front of the church and you give him, again, prestige and importance. But you say to the poor guy, stand here. Or perhaps, well, there might be one seat left in the far corner. I put my feet on it, but you can sit there. Yeah, this idea of a disrespecting those who are poor, and James is saying, if you do that, you're violating the law of God. You're not loving your neighbor yourself. You have a, a preference, verse number 8 and verse number 9. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Wow! Does it matter how I welcome people to church here? Well, if you do it wrong, you're guilty of sin. That's a serious matter. Praise God, Christ died for such sin. But we must repudiate such sin and be those who welcome people into the house of God, loving strangers. You see the same over in 3 John. Just look across there. Again, as I'm trying to emphasize this idea of hospitality, it really... It has, in many ways, a primary significance in terms of the fellowship of the saints here in our church. How do we welcome those who are strangers? Well, John commends Gaius here in verse number 5. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and the strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity for the church, whom if thou bring forward in their journey after a goodly sort, thou shalt do well. And he continues in terms of receiving those who are laboring the word, they're traveling visitors, and they're received into his home, and they're received into the church, and they're welcomed. They're not like Diotrephes, who, who wants to keep people out and doesn't want to welcome people into the church. He's got this, this fence upon the church. If it's not his people, they don't get into the church of Christ. No, there's a welcoming spirit in the work of God's. Got to have this. In many ways, my prayer in light of this is to give us the problem of such things. It's normal and ordinary for churches to have people coming in as visitors. And we should be praying for that. That the strangers and the poor who come through the door, we are those who can embrace them and welcome them in the work of God. So it has that primary relevance in terms of the house of the Lord, but it also has a secondary relevance in the homes of the saints. Hospitality in our homes. That's certainly implied in 3 John, those who are visiting and traveling were welcome to stay in the homes. Again, a lack of hotel accommodation, uh, the inns in Bethlehem were filled, yeah, that sort of thing, and so you want to open up your homes to those who are strangers. But look across at Romans chapter 12. For Romans 12 makes it clear this idea of hospitality is not just in the context of the church and for strangers, but it has a broader significance not only to the stranger, but also to the saint. Romans 12, the verse number 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continually instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints 
given to hospitality. And so in the context of church life, there is this encouragement to the saints that they are given to hospitality in their homes. I think it's time for a reset, folks. And COVID came along, the pandemic came along, and we have forgotten what it is to host and to show talent to each other in our homes. I'm not pointing the finger at people, I'm pointing the finger at myself. Fellowshiping together in the homes of the saints. Sweet times of conversation and encouragement, whereby there's the benefit of mutual prayer and admonition and encouragement in the things of God. This is what church life's meant to look like. Beyond what happens here on a Sunday, where the church family exists in such a way that we're given to hospitality. You see it also across in 1 Peter. This is not just Paul's idea. One last reference for now. 1 Peter chapter 4 and the verse number 9. Here just adds to the weight of this. This is a sweet obligation, please. The burdens of Christ are light, they are precious, and we delight in these things. We will benefit greatly from these things because we're told in verse number 9 to use hospitality here, not to strangers, not outside the church at this time, but one to another without grudging. And what does that reflect? It reflects the fervent charity among yourselves, verse number 8. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. I think the idea there is that in the church of Christ, there are all manner of reasons whereby we might not want to have people in our homes. Past offenses, past grievances, or things about them that you just don't quite like. But charity covers those sins. And hospitality is without grudging in the house of God. If you know these things, says the Lord, happy are you if you do them. Third thing, is there application here regarding sanctification? Now, we've seen the idea of it's being a sacrament. We've seen the idea of, of ongoing Christian service and love for the saints. When it comes to sanctification, what's a spiritual application of this to the New Testament church? Again, you will note clearly the foot washing has spiritual significance to the saints. The Lord says to Peter, verse number 7, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. What did Peter not know? He's got his feet washed. It's a common practice. There was no mystery in that. And so the point of the passage is to point Peter and the disciples to a deeper, more important spiritual significance. Hence the language regarding cleansing and being clean. And so Peter's burden, I want my hands and my head washed. And the Lord says, but you're not all clean. Speaking of Judas. So undoubtedly, as we saw last time, the spiritual significance of this foot washing was to teach the disciples a lesson regarding sanctification. They were justified. They were cleansed in Christ's blood. But there was the need for their feet to be washed continually. The need for ongoing sanctification. The Lord sanctifies the saints. But the passage says, I have washed your feet, 
ye also ought to wash one another's feet. And I think the lesson is very, very simple. That we have a duty and an obligation to be involved in the sanctifying of one another. Christ sanctifies his church, but he does so through the ministry of the saints. And we all have the obligation to be involved in the ministry of sanctifying one another. In love, we seek to make and encourage each other more in Christ's likeness. There's a positive aspect to this and a negative aspect. The positive is that we are to encourage one another in the paths of righteousness and the paths of holiness. In Ephesians chapter 5, Christ is said to sanctify the church with the washing of water with the Word. It is the use of the Word of God that is the means whereby the saints sanctify each other. But I want to show you in the Word of God tonight very, very quickly that this ministry does not just belong to the elders or the pastor, but every single child of God has the responsibility to be washing one another with the Word. That is all of our duty, all of our responsibility. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In the language, again, of Paul's exhortation to this local church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and the verse number 11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. There's this ongoing, continual application to the church that they are responsible to edify one another. And you know that word edify, it is to build each other up. But in, in what? Not just to say to each other, oh, aren't you really good this week? But to say to each other, you must be built up in your faith. And how do we build up in the faith? By giving the word. By instructing in the word. By encouraging in the word. By sharing the word with one another. You know, brother, let me tell you what I learned in the word today. Or, or, or perhaps something comes to in your quiet time and you, you're just so blessed in the Word. Do you know what will help you to not forget that? Picking up the telephone and calling a brother who you think might be blessed by the Word and say, listen, I won't keep you long, 30 seconds, but let me share what the Lord blessed me with today. You will edify your brother and you'll also remember the thing that God taught you. It's, it's so very, very simple. We can edify one another in the things of God by using the Word and washing each other's feet in the Word of God. You see, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15 that we are able also to admonish one another. God has filled us with the Spirit of God. It's not just a, a special infilling for a minister or a pastor. Each and every child of God is filled with the Spirit of God, has the knowledge required to admonish and encourage each other. I need to turn to this one, conscious of time, but Hebrews chapter 3. Because this ties in with what we saw this morning. We were looking at the matter of the danger of unbelief in the, in the people of God. Uh, and Hebrews chapter 3 has a section on that, on that very matter. Of course, the whole passage, the whole of Hebrews is warning about unbelief. But Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 says this. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today. Not a case of 
It's the Lord's Day. Have a nice week. But the church continually interacting in such a way that there's mutual encouragement day by day in the things of God. You don't know the danger your sister is in on a Thursday morning in the, in the work of God. Some particular struggle and burden. And God puts this person upon your heart as you pray over the church and you think about this person and you think to yourself, I, I'm just going to call, or even just send a text message and say, here's a word of encouragement from the Lord for your soul today. You've no idea the benefit you'll do to that person in that moment. That we interact together day by day in the work of God. Exhort one another daily, not once a week, but daily, encouraging each other in things of God. Now, you cannot do that for everybody every day. That's not the point. It is the church functioning as an interacting body whereby you encourage me and I'll encourage you and we can minister to one another in the things of God that we don't fall into unbelief and be cut off from the promises of God's. We want to be strong in faith. And if you live your Christian life as an island cut off from others, there's a tendency and a danger to fall into unbelief. Exhort one another daily. Of course, church life is a huge part of this. We're not as forsake the assembling ourselves together. Why? So that we can provoke one another to love and to good works. We can sanctify each other by even being in the assembly of God. We teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Church fellowship is a big part of that. But it's not at all. So I ask the question. Have you washed any feet recently? Have you been involved in washing the feet of the saints in the house of God in this place recently? That's a positive aspect, is the washing of the water of the word. There's also a negative, and that, that is dealing properly with the matter of sin. You see, the idea of your feet getting dirty involved, they're contaminated with the sins of the world. And so at times there is a need within the church to deal with the matter of sin. Now you turn across to Galatians chapter 6. And with this we'll finish tonight. Galatians chapter 6. Now, of course, if your sin is between you and your brother, it's a personal sin that they have sinned against you, then Matthew 18 sets out the parameters as to how to deal with that. You go to them privately, they don't hear you, you bring the church in, all those things. You get that in Matthew 18. But Galatians 6 has a more general application where you perceive someone in the church has been overtaken in a fault. And clearly language implies the fault is a fault of sin. It's not necessarily against you personally. It is an awareness that you have that they are in some way overtaken in a fault. And the idea is they've been trapped and caught in this sin. It's not the idea that they've stumbled in some way and you're just aware of, of something they've done, but rather you, you're seeing a pattern of someone who's entrenched and overtaken in a particular sinful practice. Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. It's one of the easiest things in the world to be blind to the sins of others. I don't want to cause offense. I don't want to be intrusive and invasive. I don't think they'll take it well. It might break up our friendship. 
it, it might cause division. Just listen to the Bible. God's will is always the right thing to do. Hear the word of God and discreetly deal with the person in a spirit of meekness. Consider thyself, lest thou also be tempted. We must be washing our feet, each other's feet. This ongoing work of spiritual sanctification by the saints and the assembly of God's people. Not just by those in pastoral ministry and the eldership, but by all the saints. And Christ ends that section and says again in verse 17, If ye know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Christ died to make us like himself. And to be like Christ is the place of true blessedness. Blessed, happy are ye if you do them. Christ loves us and sanctifies us. And as we serve each other, we have the blessing of being pleasing to the Lord. True happiness is washing one another's feet. May the Lord impress the word upon our hearts tonight. Let's pray together, please. Eternal God and Father, we pray that you give us much help in the consideration of this passage. That we be those who would not be hearers of the word only, but doers. Grant us the grace that we need to apply these things wisely in our own church context. That you would build up the fellowship of the saints here. That as we do love one another, so that would abound more and more. That we would encourage each other and exhort each other. Dear Father, we're living in times when the world is such a dangerous place. We, Lord, we pray for the grace to help one another. To be a blessing and a support, and a means of sanctifying each other in the things of Christ. Make us more like our Savior. Thank you for the blood of Christ that secures our redemption and secures our sanctification. Help us to live out the word. Bless us this week. Keep your hand upon us for good. In Jesus' precious name, amen.